even in the face of good evidence, it's quite hard to change people's behaviour, which is really the end game of research, is not, um, as some people might think, publishing in the New England Journal of Medicine. The end game is to change people's behaviour and change the way they practice so that we produce better outcomes for our patients. Welcome to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective Podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper. In this podcast, we interview leaders and expert clinicians in critical care. We ask them to share their insights about relevant critical care topics. And for today, we go to Sydney, Australia to discuss optimal fluid choice and titration in the ICU. Okay, uh, before we get started, uh, would you like to introduce yourself? Um, yes, so my name's Simon Finfer. I'm a critical care clinician and researcher uh, based in Sydney. I'm originally from the UK. I trained in London and then uh, I trained in anesthesia, internal medicine and critical care in London, Sydney, Toronto and Oxford. And I was an intensive care consultant in Oxford for a couple of years before I moved to Sydney, uh, which will be 25 years ago next May. And in, in Sydney, I'm a half-time clinician at uh, Royal North Shore and the Sydney Adventist Hospital, where I'm the director of the ICU, and half-time academic at the George Institute for Global Health and the University of New South Wales. Great. Um, it's an absolute pleasure to have you uh, on this podcast. Uh, you regard it as a leader in critical care research and have numerous publications and considerable funding. And we're really grateful for you helping us uh, chat about optimal fluid choice in the ICU. Um, so as a bit of a background, um, uh, while we've gone through our training, we, we know that fluid therapy is ubiquitous in the ICU. And we're often told that fluids should be considered as a drug uh, when we administer it. So I was wondering if you could just share with us um, in the 21st century, uh, what do experts consider to be the optimal fluid choice in the ICU? Well, there really isn't an answer to that question. Um, we've spent a long period of time involved in a, a rather facile debate of crystalloid versus colloid with people holding views which as usual in such discussions and controversies, the, 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 the fewer data there are available, the stronger the opinions are held on one side or the other. Um, and I think it's important for people to understand some of the history of, of the development of fluids and the fact that most of the fluids that were are used commonly in ICU and in, in medical practice around the world um, did not go through the sort of safety uh, licensing processes that we would expect of a, a drug nowadays, which is, is why myself and those involved in this area of research um, an interest have been trying to promote this idea that fluids should be viewed as drugs. Because, for instance, if you, if you look at hydroxyethyl starch, which we have very good data is is harmful to um, critically ill patients, certainly patients with sepsis. The original licensing of 
um, starch by the FDA was based on observational study of a little over 200 patients and a and study of 100 um, healthy volunteers with a, an observation period of 48 hours. So the same is true of, of many of the other drug uh, fluids that we use. So there's no real answer to the question, what is the optimal fluid choice? Because as we predominantly publicly funded um, collaborative research groups have conducted the sorts of trials that probably should have been done before these drugs and fluids were licensed, it's, been, it's become clear that colloids aren't a class of drug fluid that have one class effect. Different colloids have different effects. And we're also investigating now crystalloids in the same fashion because clearly they have different compositions. And it's become clearer and clearer that there are um, fluid-specific and disease and probably context-specific effects. So overall, I, I think the evidence suggests that our first-line choice of fluids should be crystalloids. And it's very difficult to support the use of any colloid other than human albumin. Gotcha. Um, so th given that you said that we should be maybe basing our choice of fluid on the underlying disease process or the, the condition that the patient has, what, what would make you choose uh, lactated ringers versus normal saline versus plasma IP or albumin uh, as your initial fluid uh, therapy in a patient in the ICU? So the, there are some groups of patients where it's, it's become clearer that certain fluids should not be used. So um, in the SAFE study, which was the 7,000 patient blinded trial of albumin versus saline that I um, led for the ANZIX clinical trials group, um, which was published in um, 2004, um, we found surprisingly... Uh, contrary to strongly held opinion, the patients who had um, traumatic brain injury who were randomly assigned to receive albumin rather than saline for their, their fluid resuscitation needs had increased mortality, um, very significantly increased mortality, and that more increase in mortality persisted out to two years. And the the neurological function of survivors was not um, better in the albumin group. So it wasn't that we were um, seeing an increase in death of people who had terrible brain injury who wouldn't recover. The overall recovery of those who did survive was the same in the two groups. So um, it's, it's clear that there are certain groups of patients who should not receive certain fluids. It's quite the the licensing restrictions on hydroxyethyl starch now um are very quite clear that they shouldn't be given it shouldn't be given to critically ill patients, should certainly not be given to patients with sepsis. I hold the view that actually shouldn't be given to anyone. Um but that that's not a view that's held by everybody. Um in terms of choices of crystalloid solutions, this is something that um Currently, we have a lot of observational data. We have observational data that, that suggests that the use of um, a balanced or buffered 
salt solutions such as um, lactated ringers, Hartman's solution, plasmalite over normal saline may have some beneficial effects um, in terms of ring, uh, kidney function, uh, post-operative complications. But the, 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 those data haven't as yet been su supported by really robust data from trials. The, the, the only um, decent-sized published trial is, is the split trial from New Zealand, which was a complicated cluster crossover trial in four ICUs comparing um, saline and plasmalite. And there, there wasn't a... It was, there wasn't an increase in kidney injury in that trial in patients who received saline. And that was ob obviously a, a, a blinded randomized trial is much less likely to produce biased results than observational data where you, you can't rule out residual confounding, you can't rule out indication bias. Why did people choose to give someone saline or plasmalite? Was there something else going on that we just don't know about? There are some some um, trials ongoing. There's a, there's comparing plasmalite and saline. There's we're conducting the PLUS study, which has started in Australia and New Zealand, which will be an 8,800 participant trial. And the Brazilian critical care trials group is conducting BASICS, which and we've we've um, aligned our uh, trial designs so that we'll be able to combine the two at the end of the day. Um, and they're planning to uh, recruit 11,000 patients and randomly assign to either saline or plasmalite. So those trials, when completed, will give us some really good, robust data and will be big enough also to look realistically at some subgroup effects. So currently, I, I believe that normal saline is the fluid we should use in people with acute brain pathologies because um, using fluids that are hypotonic or even at the lower end of normal tonicity um, is difficult to support in patients at risk or having intracranial hypertension. Um, beyond that, I don't think there's um, good data, that, you know, there's not really good data one way or the other to, to, to write a, a clear recommendation. Um, my 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 own practice, as is common in in Australia, um, is in an ICU which which treats patients with everything. So we don't separate our ICUs into medical or surgical. So we have neurosurgery, we have cardiothoracic surgery, we have burns, we have general medical, we have um, patients who've undergone all manner of surgeries, um, and in 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 the absence of other really good outcome data outside of people with acute brain pathologies, it's not unreasonable to base your cho choice of fluids around patients' um, biochemistry, physiology. Obviously, sometimes you have to, you want to replace particular fluid losses. Um, and it will become clearer as we get the results of these large blinded trials um, whether we should be taking a different approach to fluid choice than that. Um, in terms of the PLUS study, would you be able to share with us uh, the, the study hypotheses and what each groups will be receiving and uh, uh, your expected uh, outcomes or the outcomes that you'll be measuring? 
Yeah, so PLUS is comparing um, the plasma light that is available in um, Australia and New Zealand. So in the US, you have plasma light A and B. In in Australia, we have plasma light 148. Um, It's manufactured by Baxter in Sydney. Uh, They also manufacture and supply saline. The, The studies funded by the Australian National Health and Medical Research Council, but Baxter is providing the blinded fluids. And patients, the patient population we've selected is um, using some of the criteria we used in the NICE sugar study, which was the, another trial I led on comparing um, tight um, or intensive and conventional glucose control. And we that said it's the inclusion criteria are that the, the patient treating clinician intends to give the patient a, bolus, a fluid bolus, and we've defined that as um, 500 mils um, in less of, of fluid as a bolus in less than an hour. Um, that the patient is expected to be in the ICU the day after tomorrow. And so we find we've found in previous research that if you ask people to predict ICU length of stay. Um, it's very inaccurate, but if you ask people, do you expect to discharge this patient tomorrow, they get that question right most of the time. So the patient's expected to be in the ICU the day after tomorrow. They're not expected to be taking, uh, eating um, or drinking tomorrow, which is another criteria we used in the NICE sugar study. Um, and that they are going to be invasively vas- have invasive vascular monitoring. And in nice sugar, that selected a population of patients, 97% were ventilated and had a mortality of around 25%. So obviously, one of the misconceptions about clinical trials is that you get power from the number of participants you re- recruit, which... You don't. You get power from the number of outcome events that occur in the trial. So we've designed the trial around a a 23% mortality rate, um, and the patients are then assigned to receive either plasmolite or saline as a blinded fluid for their fluid resuscitation needs and also for... um, maintenance, uh, crystalloid solutions, and for compatible drug infusions. And we have data from other trials that suggest that that will result in in patients, each patient receiving um, around about 10 to 12 litres of fluid, um, because clearly if you only give a tiny amount of fluid to people, it would be unrealistic to expect that you would be able to detect a treatment effect, even if one was better than the other. Um, And our primary outcome measure is 90-day all-cause mortality, and we're looking at, um, obviously, renal effects because of the concerns of of saline. So we, we, we have a number of other usual secondary outcomes that one has in... ICU trials like um, length of mechanical ventilation, use and duration of renal replacement therapy, um, length of stay in the ICU in the hospital, which which allows a an economic analysis as well at the end of the day. Uh, but while focus is in all our trials is very much on patient-centered 
outcomes we're we're looking for robust data that will change practice rather than looking at surrogate outcomes or or biochemical effects so one of the interesting aspects of this trial is that patients will receive the same fluid regimen during those during the ICU stay um, do you think clinicians would usually continue to use one fluid or that they would change the fluid um, as the days go by? Or do you think it's just uh, in terms of the study design, it's better to just keep the patient on one type of fluid? Well, this the, the split study that I talked about earlier was done as a pilot for this study and um, the, the the design that we've gone for is actually based on the fact, I mean, SPLIT was not designed to look at a mortality outcome, but there was actually a 12.5% relative reduction of risk of death in patients who received only plasma light. So that's part of the, the, reason, the, the rationale. Um, one of the, the great misconceptions about fluid uh, in use in the ICU is that it's conducted on some sort of logical um, scientific basis. We've conducted two studies looking at what fluids do people actually use in the ICU. The first, um, again, something that I led was was called Safe Trips, which was after the Safe Study and Trips transfer translation of research into practice, nothing to do with traveling anywhere. And that was published in Critical Care in 2010. And we collected data from um, almost 500 ICUs on a particular day, um, recorded what all patient characteristics there diagnosis, their age, their background medical history, whether they had chronic lung disease, chronic heart disease, their biochemistry, their um, all their lab results prior to, to them receiving um, boluses of fluid. And we then, um, one of our senior research fellows, Betty Liu, did a very complicated multivariate analysis, um, which took her an awful long a long time and we looked at what were the were the factors that we could discern that were associated with the choice of a particular fluid and you would imagine as you've implied that people look at biochemistry results and and, and I've no doubt that happens to a degree but there was there was the only thing that was significantly associated with the choice of fluid was geography. So which fluid you got was predominantly and nearly totally um, determined by local practice. Um, and that we've we've repeated that um, study again in a, a, tri- a study called Fluid Trips, which was led by Naomi Hammond, another one of our research fellows. And um, we haven't conducted this, the same um, a very complex multivariate analysis as yet, but the results look very similar. So there's, there is a misconception that people um, practice um, a choice of fluid that's sort of custom designed for the individual patient they're treating. Um, it's largely done based on local practice, and I think an awful lot of fluid is prescribed by um, relatively um, junior people. 
um, and that's why we're trying to generate you know better data. There are those who are critical. Um, I think there's no secret that, for instance, Jean-Louis Vincent is very critical of, of studies like PLUS and, and feel that you should just look at the plasma chloride level and choose your fluid based on that. And that's a perfectly reasonable hypothesis that's testable in a clinical trial, and no one has tested that hypothesis yet. And we've, you know, over a 20-plus year uh, career in critical care research, consistently we have found that things that we think are safe and logical are unsafe. And consistently, both we and the Canadian Critical Care Trials Group and now other trials groups around the world approach a problem by saying, okay, let's go and ask people what they do, then let's study what people do, and then let's decide whether we need to do a trial to investigate this question. And we have consistently found, as have the Canadians, that what people say they do and what they actually do are very different. Um, so there are, I think, a, a great there's a, there's a great misconception around a lot of our practice about what we think we do and what we actually do, and that's as true in Australia and New Zealand as it is in in pretty well all the other countries in the world where it's been studied. That's absolutely fascinating, and uh, I'm definitely looking forward to the results of the of the plus study. Um, uh, you mentioned the use of the choice of fluids um, as varying uh, with geography, and I came across one of your articles, I think published in Critical Care Medicine, where you looked at albumin use in the United States, and I think you came to the same conclusion where you said it's unclear as to the reasons why it's been prescribed as it is, uh, but uh, we seem to use a lot of albumin. It could cost up to about half a billion dollars a year, but there's no real reason as to why we're using so much of it over the last couple of years. You would be able to um, expand on that some. Um, I, as I said, I think the first choice of fluids um, for pretty well most um, issues ought to be a crystalloid. I don't. There are patients. Obviously, a randomised controlled trial looks at the population effect. And if you have a, a neutral effect, and this is an argument that, again, people put forward about large trials, if you have a neutral effect, it's quite possible that there are groups of patients within that large population who are benefiting and others who, who are being harmed, and therefore the, the net effect is a neutral one. Um, the choice of the, the decision to use albumin, a lot of um, protocols uh, for various diseases. I mean, we, we have a protocol for the treatment of burns patients because we're a burn centre, which includes the administration of albumin. Now, one can argue that there isn't large randomised controlled trial data to support that practice, but then there aren't any large randomised controlled trials looking at the use of albumin in patients with burns. Uh, the Use of albumin in the United States, we, we did look at that, um, and uh, there is considerable use, and it seems to be increasing. Uh, why that should be, I think, again, we know that fluid choice is largely dictated by local practice um, in the absence of, of good, good science. Um, so it's quite likely that... Um, 
people have protocols which suggest they should use albumin. The surviving sepsis campaign guidelines suggest that albumin um, should be the fluid used in patients who, are, who don't appear to be responding to a crystalloid resuscitation strategy, and I wouldn't argue with that because there is a consistent, although small, beneficial effect in clinical trials of giving albumin to patients with severe sepsis or septic shock, so I certainly wouldn't argue with that. But in terms of looking in any more detail into why particular people used um, albumin in particular patient, individual patients or patient groups, that's something that would have to be studied in more detail, and it's quite hard um, to really tease that out using electronic data, although clearly the large electronic databases that are being generated out of electronic medical records in the US are producing um, increasingly interesting insights into how people are practicing. The, the other fascinating thing, of course, is is how hard it is. I mean, research is, to me, the reason I do research is to try and improve patients' outcomes. And in order to do that, you have to change behavior. Um, you either have to say, okay, what we're doing now is the best way, keep doing what you're doing, or more likely is saying, I can. Im we've discovered that albumin is bad for people with traumatic brain injury or you shouldn't use hydroxyethyl starch or you should use low tidal volume ventilation. And and the you know, traditional teaching is that it takes about you know, 17 years to, to get substantial changes in practice when you produce such evidence. The, the interesting thing is practice change occurs much more rapidly in response to a signal of harm than a signal of benefit. Um, and so where we have demonstrated, for instance, um, I think probably the, the best example I would use out of my own research is the NICE sugar study where where we found that intensive glucose control increased mortality and that led to a change in guidelines and, and a fairly widespread change in practice around the world quite quickly. But when the ARDS um, network went back to look at the hospitals that had taken part in the original low tidal volume study, they found that um, patients were still being ventilated with high tidal volumes in those hospitals that had actually taken part in the study. So it's even in the face of good evidence, it's quite hard to change people's behavior, which is really the end game of research, is not um, as some people might think, publishing in the New England Journal of Medicine, the end game is to change people's behavior and change the way they practice so that we produce better outcomes for our patients. Definitely, I agree. Um, in terms of um, the amount of fluid that patients uh, should receive, I mean, obviously fluid has a has fluid therapy, has side effects. Um, how do you titrate your fluids and um, how do you ensure the patient doesn't become a dematous, fluid overloaded, and develops complications of the therapy? Yeah, I think this is a this is really the a very important point and 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 the new frontier um, in some ways. And it's not only about avoiding edema. I mean, I, the there have been now obviously two. There's been the FEAST study in Africa, 
Um, and again, that's, you know, you can say, well, I practice in Australia, you're calling me from the USA, what does, you know, clinical practice in in Kenya have to do with what I do? And I'm an, in, an adult intensivist, so what, why would I be interested in, in the results of a trial in African children who, with infection? But the FEAST study, which, which Kath Maitland led in, in Africa, um, which was really looking at children with um, severe infections in a, re- in a resource-poor setting where there were no critical care facilities um, and, and even basic, what we would consider very basic um, treatments such as oxygen therapy could be uh, quite restricted. Um, and Kath did this wonderful study where they the, these sick children were randomly assigned either to receive fluid boluses or not to receive fluid boluses. And these were children with clinical markers of hypoperfusion. And the nurses who conducted the study were firmly of the view that the children who were getting the fluid boluses were doing better. They were they were seeing improvements in their vital signs when they were giving the fluid, etc. And they were very upset and Cathers told me and many others that when she presented the results to the hospitals who actually did the study, there was a great deal of crying in the room because what she presented was the result that the children who were given fluid boluses had an increased risk of dying. And in a follow-up paper, um, the reason these children were dying was not respiratory failure from fluid overload or pulmonary edema. They were dying of, of cardiovascular collapse. And then, obviously, only in the last uh, couple of months, um, Ben Andrews and others have published the, the paper in JAMA from the early goal-directed therapy trial in Zambia, where they found that patients who were uh, um, randomly assigned to an early goal-directed therapy approach to sepsis had increased mortality. Now, the big question is whether these have any relevance to um, practice in the in the rest of the world. The only really um, completed trial looking at um, a, a restrictive fluid strategy um, was really the FACT trial. Um, there are trials ongoing looking at fluid restriction in terms of resuscitation. Australian practice, I think, is quite dry in that we have a very low threshold for using vasopressors, almost exclusively norepinephrine, during the resuscitation phase. If, some, if a patient is hypotensive, we don't feel that we should give lots of fluid and then only if they don't respond start vasopressors, we tend to start them very early. And we need some very clear understanding. Um, and again, this is, this is there are currently pilot studies going on, um, and it's going to take a, a reasonably large and quite complex trial to work out whether a fluid-restrictive strategy is beneficial. There's certainly evidence from um, elective surgery that it is, um, there's the evidence I've talked about from Feast and from Ben Andrews' study that it, it may be beneficial in other settings, and we really need to look at that in in uh, our own practice. We've 
we found, for instance, when when um, we did the chest study, which was hydroxyethyl starch compared to saline in in a general population of ICU patients in Australia and New Zealand, that the amount of fluid we we are giving seems to be a lot less than when we did the safe study. So there has been a trend to being less tolerant of um, giving lots of fluid. Um, and I think also in, in, in the ARDS trial, it wasn't only a matter of restricting fluid. It was also earlier use of diuretics to try and maintain uh, patients into as near a neutral fluid balance as possible. And again, there is, there is logic in that, but I'd, I'd, re I'd like to see it um, tested in a, a large randomized controlled trial, um, which is really the only way we're going to sort out what is best. My, certainly, my own practice now, um, I, I don't think I've ever been a great enthusiast um, for giving vast amounts of fluid, unlike some of the pictures you can find and some of the slides used to see in um, conferences years ago with patients who had had 20, 30 litre kilogram weight gain I, through the accumulation of 20 to 30 litres of, of fluid and being, you know, grossly edematous. Um, that's, that's, that's never been a feature of my practice. Um, and I think it's um, the holding on us to look at uh, how we how much fluid we're giving when um, it's still the first reaction to a hypotensive patient is to give fluid and I, I don't have any argument with that um, but um, when a when a patient has sepsis for example they have vasodilatation they have um, a lot of pooling of, on the venous capacitance side and it's it's illogical to me to try and treat that with fluid. Um, if your pathology is of vasodilatation, then the logical thing to do is to use a vasopressor to treat it rather than giving more fluid. And the fact that a patient is fluid responsive does not, to me, mean that they should get fluid. Um, that That's um, the idea of you know, getting to the point where someone is falling off the top of the assumed Stalin curve is not logical. If someone has vasodilatation and a lot of, particularly venodilatation, which I think is is not frequently thought about, um, and norepinephrine has a venoconstrictive effect as well, then the logical thing is, to me is not to give vast amounts of fluid, but to use a vasopressor. I definitely agree. Um, and then looking to the future, um, what diagnostic or therapeutic advances do you foresee in the next uh, three to five years uh, in fluid management in the ICU? Hmm. Well, I, I think it would be very fashionable to talk about precision medicine, but I'm not as yet convinced that that's something that's going to be very helpful to us in, in the ICU. I'd actually like us to kind of go a bit retro in, in some ways rather than looking at you know, diagnostic advances. Most diagnoses can be made on history and examination. 
and and the reliability of diagnostic tests I, I think is very poorly understood um, we are we are we spend an extraordinary amount of money on diagnostic tests, um, many of which I think are, are unnecessary. Um, some of them are very unreliable, and, and that's um, not well understood. I, don't, I think if you walked around any ICU and asked people to tell you the you know, sensitivity, specificity, positive and negative predictive values of particular tests that they were ordering and basing their, their management on, um, I would be astounded if people could tell you those numbers for even a fraction of the tests they use, and I would fall into that category as, as well. So, I, I, and, the, and the the appropriate way to use diagnostic tests is to have a pre-test probability in your mind. Do I think it's likely that the patient has the thing that I'm testing for, and then to know something about the likelihood ratio of the test so that you can adjust from your pre-test probability to your post-test probability. Whereas I, I, I fear that most people think I'll do a test and that will give me the answer. Um, and unfortunately, that's, that's not the case. So in my lifetime, the practice, you know, I, I've, I qualified from medical school in 1981. So 30 odd, you know, the practice of critical care medicine has changed completely out of sight. And the the machinery that we have, you know, ventilators, you know, microprocess sort of driven ventilators as opposed to something that was basically a bellows and just, you know, could blow at a certain rate and to a certain pressure. I have no doubt that there have been enormous benefits of those, small incremental benefits, not measured, not tested, that had improved outcomes. In terms of diagnosis, certainly imaging has been, uh, you know, an absolute revelation. And those people who are on, anyone who's on Twitter who follows me on Twitter will know that I've been engaged in some discussion around point-of-care ultrasound, for instance, about whether that needs to be evaluated in a in a more consistent fashion. So in terms of advances for the future, um, I would like to see advances in, in decision support tools. I think medicine in general has a, an extraordinarily bad track record um, in terms of using the vast amounts of data um, that we generate in fact, the extraordinary amount of data that bombards us on a daily basis when we're in clinical practice and which in scientific uh, research would tell you the human mind cannot process that amount of data in a, in a very logical fashion. So I would like to see advances in decision support tools and the use of that, that those extraordinary amounts of data that, that we generate and to help us to, to manage our patients. Um, I, I, I'm not going to try and guess what's going to be, how that's going to work out, uh, but clearly the, the things, you know, we walk around with, with more computing power in our pockets, as we all know, than, than put man on the moon. Um, and so we have the, 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 the ability now to use that 
to assist us in managing our patients in a much more logical fashion. As we uh, wind up the podcast, um, which uh, top three pearls uh, would you want to impart to fellows, the junior faculty in critical care um, about fluid management or taking care of patients in the ICU? Well, as far as fluid management goes, I think I've, I've ex- expressed uh, my opinions. I think we have an incomplete understanding, as we do about many, many things. And I think what has really excited me over the, the past few years is the coming together of large groups of investigators working not only um, in now in national groups, but collabor- national groups collaborating to generate the data. I think in terms of looking after people in critical care, the important things, um, we're in an extraordinarily privileged and powerful position. We, we may not feel like it, even you know, if you're a fellow or a junior faculty, you might not feel like that, but the reality is you are. Um, if you, you're not the patient, the patient's the person who's going through a hard time. And my... My advice would generally be to to remain humble, to understand that, to remain sceptical, um, question yourself, question your beliefs, question your practice, question other people's practice, and, and embrace uncertainty. There is so much we don't know. And, and to be honest, the people, the people who worry me um, are the people who think they have the answers um, because it's quite clear has become you know been clear to me over the, the past 30 years things that I did in in the 1980s in London were harming patients and through research and improvements in knowledge we're no longer doing those things so I think it's very important to embrace that uncertainty tell yourself okay I'm doing the best job I can with the with the knowledge I have but I really don't have a complete understanding of this. No one does, and we need to generate the knowledge to do that. And clearly, um, I think the other thing that that we all have to work on, because we work in a high-pressure environment, we often have to make time-critical decisions. We're working as parts of teams. Um, the, the the day of the the sort of autocratic... Um, know-all person should be over and I think it's really important that in that environment where it's where it is high stress um, that we work actively work on maintaining our humanity and the fact that we are um, not treating diseases we're treating people it's someone's mother father son uncle etc um, and it's very important that we maintain that humanity. It's also very important for us because, you know, for purely selfish reasons that that when you lose track of that is when you start running into problems, errors, um, conflict, and people wanting to do things like sue you. Um, so that, that um, I think you can learn the... Technical skills, you can learn the knowledge, um, the background knowledge that one needs to practice critical care. Um, But at the same time, 
I would encourage um, people who are embarking or early in a career in in, in what I think is, a, you know, I, I consider myself to be extraordinarily lucky to have done a and to still be doing a job that I love, um, that I'm never bored at. Um, but whilst doing that, to to remain humble, sceptical, and actively work on on maintaining our humanity. I think that's a perfect way to end the podcast. Thank you so much. Um, I really appreciated your very thoughtful and insightful comments, and it's an absolute um, privilege to interview you. A big thank you to Dr. Simon Finfer, and a big thank you to all of you for listening to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective podcast. I'm Dominic Pepper for the American Thoracic Society.